morning. And what I'd like to do is tell, give you an illustration and a little story from Ravi Zacharias to sort of uh, frame the discussion this morning. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 12, 8 uh, with the title, Is Wisdom Meaningless? And, uh, you know, in our culture, there's a, if, you know, if you read much or listen much, you'll hear a lot of discussion about postmodernism. And honestly, it's, you know, it's one of those words that I, I never quite got. And, uh, but Ravi Zacharias gives a great illustration to sort of give you a, an understanding of what it means. And he says there's three umpires, and they're discussing how they call balls and strikes. And so the traditional umpire says, you know, I just call them like they are. If it's a ball, I call it a ball. If it's a strike, I call it a strike. The modernist umpire says, well, you know, I call them as I see them. If it looks like a strike, I call it a strike. If it looks like a ball, I call it a ball. The postmodernist umpire says, it's nothing. It's not a ball or a strike until I say it is. <laughs> and so there's this, there's this sense that uh, we sort of make our own way. We create our own reality. Whatever works for me, whatever helps me get along, that that's just okay. And so there's this thought that we can, um, you know, that we can sort of decide, you know, what's, what's right or wrong in our lives. Uh, so Ravi goes on to tell another story, and he says when he was at Ohio State to do a, uh, do a lecture, he said when they're driving across the campus, they told him very proudly, you know, that we have the first postmodernist building in the country. And so he looked at him and he said, well, you know, what is a postmodern building? And they said, well, the architect decided, in his own words, because he said the architect designed this building with no design in mind, which some of you architects might find pretty interesting. Uh, as a contractor, sometimes we feel that way. Um, <laughs> I'll never get another job in Memphis. I'll be moving next week. Um, when the architect was asked why, he said, life itself is capricious. Why should our buildings have any design and meaning if there's no design and meaning in life? So Ravi said, so, so his argument is, there's, life has no design and purpose, then why should the building have any design? And they said, yeah, that's it. There's stairways that go nowhere. There's uh, doors that open up to a wall. There's columns that don't reach the ceiling. You know, it's, and uh, he said, that's really interesting. Did he do the same thing with the foundation? And they kind of they stopped, and, and Ravi said, of course, you see that you know, we can fool with the infrastructure as much as we want to, but when we start to fool with the foundation, the whole thing comes down. And I'd like to just give you those two illustrations to start off as we talk about this idea of wisdom. What we're talking about is just this idea that no matter how much fluff we want to put up there, no matter how much we want to discuss things, Deep down underneath it all, we all understand that there's a certain reality that we're going to have to deal with, that there's just no way of getting around it. Uh, you know, you can believe in, in making your own reality all you want, and you jump off the top of a building, you're going to fall. There, there is just a baseline reality, and that gives us, uh, that leads us to this uh, definition of wisdom that you've got on the handout that I want to work with a little bit this morning. It says, Wisdom is the ability and the discipline to clearly see God when you look at anything else. It is the ability to bring our understanding of God or our relationship with God to bear on non-religious matters. And uh, I just, I love this definition because to me, 
it t it, that's the answer to the building and to the foundation, is that there's a reality that we have to deal with. And the more that we're able to look into every situation and see that ultimate reality, the more we're going to begin to, to uh, have the foundation of wisdom in our lives. Um, so as we get started, I'll go ahead and read the, I'm going to read you the first half. It's a pretty long section we've got this morning. I'll read the, uh, the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of 10, and we'll discuss that. Starting with 9.13. I saw also under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege, work, siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of the ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that rises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly, and at the end, they are wicked madness, and the fool multiplies words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell him what will happen after him? A fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a, was a servant and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. A, house, a, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. The first point I want to look at in just verses 9, 13 through 10, 1 is just this sense of the bitter sweetness of wisdom. As you look at the discussion, he says, here's a guy that could have saved the city, but you know, when he did, no one listened to him, no one remembered him, no one appreciated him. And so there's this sense, um, you know, as, and, and, you know, especially today, there's, there's just times where you almost feel foolish for doing the right thing. You know, you just feel like, why bother? No one cares. No one notices. And that's the sense of what's going on here. Just that bittersweetness that in the sense of knowing what's right and doing it, you, you know that it should be its own reward, and yet it would sure be nice for other people to take notice. So first he tells us that wisdom is better than strength, and 
you know, again, if no one appreciates it, then why is that the case? Why would why is wisdom better than than strength? And um, you know, in a crowd like well, first, I called my dad and I was like, all right, so give me an example because he he's knows all about World War II and the Civil War, and so I said, tell me about a battle where this happened. You know, give me a good example to use for how. Uh, you know, a very small force overcame a great force. And he said, well, you know, the Battle of Midway is a great example. Of course, I love that movie because the first time I went to see it, we went to see it over on Park when they had seats around. Do you remember that, when the seats would shake? And um, we thought that was really good. You know, as like a fifth grader, that was great. And uh, so I remembered some of the story, but he said, you know, if you remember that the Japanese had, had you know, all of the, the uh, advantage in terms of numbers and strength, and yet... At just the right opportunity, Spruance, when he had the opportunity, he found one of the Japanese carriers. He took everything he had and threw it at him, and, and they wound up sinking three of the Japanese carriers and turning the course of the war, that it really changed the whole war in the Pacific. So, uh, you know, that sense of just knowing when to take, it's, it's not so much having the brute force as knowing how to apply the force. And as I was thinking about it, you know, it's all about leverage, and I was, and I was telling my dad, you know, that's going to be a great example because in this crowd, if there's anything this crowd understands, it's leverage uh, of, you know, n- knowing where to apply just the right thing at just the right point. And we'll talk more about leverage in just a minute. But thinking through that, you know, if you know about where to apply the force, then it is true that wisdom is much better than strength if you know just the right place to put it. But even though wisdom is better than strength, it's often ignored. And I don't think this is too hard for us to imagine either. It's really hard to get people to listen to good sense. And I would say that there's probably a chart somewhere that would show like age versus ability to listen to good sense and that it starts off really low at a young age and and gets higher. And it's because wisdom demands so much of us. Wisdom doesn't tell us what we want to hear and that's so often, the, the younger we are, the more we want to hear what we want to hear. And wisdom demands of us hard work. It demands uh, delayed gratification. And so it's often ignored because it's just really not what people want to hear. And it's often forgotten. We can never underestimate the selfishness and the hardness of the human heart. Maybe you've had someone do something for you and you meant to write that thank you note, you meant to do something, you meant to say something, and you realize a few weeks later that you just totally forgot that someone had done something for you, and you understand how hard it is for us to follow up. And when you really, when you're in the crunch and you really need help, you know, you're you're 100% there, you you know. And then the minute everything's okay, think about it in your own prayer life, how true this is. You know, get yourself in trouble and see how willing you are to get on your knees and how easy it is to pray. And then three days later, the crisis is over and you've completely forgotten what it was about and uh, and you, you realize, you know, that you haven't taken that time. Because it, our hearts are hard. It's so easy to walk away and forget wisdom. And then it's often spoiled by foolishness. And again, this is not a hard one to understand, especially now, how easy it is for a few foolish people to lead the way and tear down what a bunch of wise people have built up. It's really the third law of thermodynamics, that, you know, that everything tends to lower, entropy and higher, uh, lower energy and higher entropy. It's just sort of the natural way of things. Leave something unattended and it will fall apart. And it's so much easier for us to jump in and sort of get on that bandwagon and and go ahead and tear it down anyway. Again, telling you from a construction standpoint, it's a whole lot easier to tear something up. 
And so this, this idea of bittersweetness then leads me to this point of, uh, from Oz Guinness in his book, The Call. And this is something that I, that I truly think about on a weekly basis. It's something we discuss in our family. And it's uh, this idea that we have an audience of one. Here's how Oz Guinness puts it. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. This observation underscores another vital feature of the truth of calling. A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. And so as we look at this story and you see this, you know, here's this guy, he saved the city, everyone forgets him, and you could, you know, he, he could feel so thankless and he could feel so frustrated, and yet on the one hand he could know, I, I did it, and, and, and feel proud of that, and on the other hand everyone's forgotten it. And so there's just this bittersweet quality of knowing that wisdom is great, but in the end, you know, it's the question that we're being asked, is wisdom meaningless? And yet what Oz Guinness is telling us here is, that what we have to do is look and ask the question, where am I looking for my approval? Where am I looking for my security? What is it that I'm looking for that's going to give my life purpose and meaning? When the world ignores us or forgets us or hinders us, where are we looking? And so as we discuss in my family, and the thing that I try to remember as I've read this, is that when I begin to look at that audience of one, when I ask the question, Who is it I'm really trying to please? And I begin to see that what I really am doing, that my response to a situation is not so that other people will notice because I'm living my life out before God and that I'm looking only to what will bring him glory, what will what will please him. And when I'm able to focus on that and to say that no matter what comes, that I'm going to find my security in in that, that I'm going to find my my sense of worth in, in living my life out in front of him that idea of audience of one begins to, begins to give me the foundation of, of true wisdom. And so if we live our lives out with an audience of one, what, are the, what does that look like? In chapter 10, the teacher sort of lays out the characteristics of wisdom. He starts off talking about the... Um, he says, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool inclines to the left. And so he's going to lay out... So what, what does it mean? What are the inclinations of a wise heart versus the inclinations of a foolish heart? And he tells you right here at the beginning in verses 2 and 3 that the fool shows everyone how stupid he is. And we've all been around someone like this. You know, maybe you've been this person. Um, and, and I think we've all done. I think of a time where I was in a... Uh, uh, this has been about 10 or 12 years ago. They started a peer mentor program, and uh, they had three or four young guys meeting with different elders. And uh, one of the elders we got to meet with was Sandy. And, uh, you know, I was going to really impress Sandy with how smart I was. And so in the middle of some discussion, this, you know, this really deep, deep question popped in my head. And uh, so I threw it out there. And, and I'm just going to give you a, if you don't know this already, you know, Sandy had the misunderstanding that I had really thought about this question. So he started really pushing the issue and, and really, you know, and he just totally laid me bare. I mean, he just exposed that I was doing nothing more than trying to impress him. And, uh, and he found out really quick that I hadn't thought about it at all. And so as I read this verse, um, you know, it reminded me of how stupid I felt and how I really made the decision that I would never ask him anything again that I hadn't thought about a lot. And, uh, (laughs) You've seen it. I mean, you can ask him a question, and he's, he can go for 30 minutes with, a, you know, like, an outline without ever looking at the note. And uh, so, anyway, I learned my lesson. But 
you can't really disguise foolishness. Uh, there's no way to get around it. No, no, and, and that's what we're going to talk about here as we look through chapter 10, that foolishness is rash, it's proud, it's clumsy, it's loud, it's lazy, and when you're around it long enough, it's, uh, it's unmistakable. There's nothing worse than a know-it-all, and that's what I was trying to do that morning was I was going to just dive right in and impress the heck out of him. But wisdom, as we start looking at this, wisdom is calm. It says calmness can lay great errors to rest. Well, we all know this. You know, the, the guy that can keep his head in the middle of everything going on is the guy that's going to come out on top. Um, wisdom's not easily offended. It takes time to think through a situation. And what wisdom knows is that it can't always control circumstances, but it can always control its response. In the heat of the moment, you know how horrible things can seem. You know, this happens at work all the time. Someone will, you know, you pick up the phone and a, and a great day turns into a bad day in a hurry. And if you just dive right in and panic and, and you know, it seems like the end of the world. And a lot of times you give something just a few minutes and, and things seem a little better and you're able to, you know, really deal with the situation. And it's just that sense of rashness that we want to dive in and fix it right then instead of just being calm and thinking through the implications. Wisdom is calm. And it's calm because, again, it's that sense of audience of one. If I'm measuring myself by the outcome of whatever's going on, maybe something I have no control over, and the only way that I can measure myself is by how that works out, then I've got to do something about it right then. But if I understand that I can't necessarily control it, but I can control myself and I respond to it in a wise way because I know that the outcome is not measured. I mean, my value is not measured by the outcome. It's measured by my response. Wisdom's humble. If you look at this, when he says there's an evil that comes from a ruler, and he talks about fools in high positions, and you think about why would that be? Why would there be fools in high position? Why would a fool do that? I think there's three reasons. One is that the fool is a fool, and so he doesn't recognize qualities, and he surrounds himself with people like himself. Or two, he's threatened by competence. You know, a foolish person, if they really know they're foolish and they're just putting on a show, there's nothing more threatening than having someone around them that is wise because it makes them feel inferior. Or third, he has to reward the people that helped him get where he was. Being a fool, he had to get to the top by some way that what, other than, than uh, doing it the right way. He had to twist things. He had to pay people off. He had to, to do things that he shouldn't have done. And so he's got to turn around and reward those people, and he puts people in positions they shouldn't be in. I, you know, I don't want to get political about this, but this is not, this is not a hard concept right now. And I, I mean, I'm not pointing it. It's Democrat and Republican. It's across the board. And that's really the most frustrating thing right now is you look around and you ask, where's the leadership? You know, what's going on in this country, whether it's business, whether it's politics? And I really, truly am not making a political comment here. I'm just saying it's across the board that, you know, we, we need leaders, and we need wise leadership. And what we see right now is there are an awful lot of people who are willing to put an awful lot of people in positions they had no business being in. Wisdom is, uh, before I jump on, this idea of humility. See, the wise man understands humility is not saying, oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm not good at that. You know, in the South, we're really great It's sort of, you know, down-talking everything we do, and you say, oh, I'm not, oh, no, 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 you know, you, you know, you go to a dinner, oh, that's great, oh, no, it was a terrible meal, I'm so sorry, you know, and 
and we're, you know, we're just constantly in, in that mindset. But true humility is not saying, oh, I'm not good at anything, and it's not constantly downgrading ourselves. True humility is really an honest assessment of who you are and knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are. So that then you, you understand as a leader, oh, okay, I'm, I'm good at this, but I'm bad at that. Or whether you're a leader or not, you understand maybe you're, you're not the leader and you know you're not a good leader. And so you're comfortable letting someone else lead. And that's true wisdom, is knowing who it is that God's made you to be and where your strengths and weaknesses are and being able to work around those and work with those, to work on the things you don't do well, to use the things you do, you do well. The fool thinks he's good at everything. He's got an opinion on everything. He's ready to jump into everything. The wise man is the one who says, no, I understand who I am, and I'm going to put someone in this position because they're so much better at this uh, than I am. You know, and that's the most, one of the most valuable qualities you can have is to be able to have an honest assessment of what it is you really are good or not good at so that you can work with other people um, and, and appreciate their strengths and weaknesses. Verses 8 through 11 talks about just this idea of competence, that that wisdom is competent. And that when you try to do something, when anything you try to do and you just try to brute force it, everyone here knows, again, this idea of leverage, of knowing how to do what you're doing, of knowing where to apply the force. When I was in high school, uh, my dad owns a plumbing company, and so he wanted to make sure that I was really committed to school and that I would really study and that I would go to college and work hard. So he put me on a jackhammer for about three or four summers, breaking concrete and digging ditches. And, uh, and I asked, he said, one, I don't ever want to ask you to, you don't ever need to be asking someone to do something that you weren't willing to do yourself, which is a whole other lesson of wisdom and, and something I'm really appreciative of. But he, you know, and then he said, and then I want you to make sure that uh, you don't, you know, that you go study because otherwise this is what you're going to be doing. And um, so I got out there, and, you know, being 15, 16, and I was in a little better shape at the time, and, you know, jackhammer's kind of cool. You know, it's, it's real heavy, and it's kind of like a workout, and uh, you're getting to tear stuff up. It was a 75-pound jackhammer, you know, and, and uh, so I got out there the first day, and I was just going to manhandle this thing, you know, and after about an hour of just letting it, you know, shake, you kind of realize it's hard work. And uh, so one of the older guys there came over, and he said, you know, there's two ways to do that. You can, run the, you can run the jackhammer, or the jackhammer can run you. And he said, let me show you a few things about this. And I want, you know, here's this old guy, and I'm thinking, yeah, it's kind of like you ever, I don't know if any of you, uh, yeah, as you, you remember playing church league basketball, and then, like, the older you got, you, you know, you'd be young, and you'd show up, and you're going to run everybody off the floor, and the old guys just beat your brains out because they could all shoot and know where to be. And... Uh, <laughs> I never got to be the old guy that did that, but, um, but it happened to us. And uh, it's kind of that same idea. You know, he got over there, and I'm, th- I'm, you know, I'm young and strong, and I'm running the thing, and he's over there just kind of, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he kind of showed me a few tricks, and, and sure enough, you know, you can run the jackhammer. And um, that's leverage. It's knowing how to use what you have and where to apply the force and what to do. And it's a whole lot less work to do it that way. And wisdom is willing to take the time to be taught and to be shown how to do something the right way and to learn you know, how to use what you've got to the best advantage. And this is just a side note, but you know, there's, there's something in that and, um, in that there are a lot of guys here that you know, have lived a lot of life and 
there's nothing, and I can tell you this, I'm 41 and I'm teaching a class that's, uh, um, you know, like early 30s, and I can tell you that there's nothing that we need more than for the guys who've been around the block a few times to come back and tell us how they got there and to tell us what that looks like and to tell us how to do it. Um, I think that what you'll find is there's a real willingness to be led and to be taught and to be shown how to run the jackhammer just a little bit. Because right now, it feels like a lot of work. There are a lot of people who are scared. There's a lot of people who are just not sure where to go. I can tell you, you know, we're in a class where all the guys are getting married. They want to know what, it, what, what does a godly marriage look like? What does it mean for me to, you know, how do I raise my children? How, you know, how do I work through this situation? It, we're ready, you know, if you're not doing it already, then... You know, just consider this kind of a challenge. Go look back and see where can you plug yourself in to some younger men that want to be led. And be willing to come back and show them how to run that thing right. Verses 12 through 14. Just talks about the foolishness that a fool's, what a fool's words look like. Wisdom's words are valuable because he's only speaking to the things that he really knows about. It's really just supply and demand, isn't it? The more words, the less they mean. And that's the battle that we fight all the time now, because in our culture there is more information with the Internet and with, uh, you know, what, 500 news channels and and, uh, the radio and everything else. You can get more information, and it can all be good information. You could listen. You can download sermons from almost every church in the country. So it's not like it's all bad information. But there is stuff out there. And, and we've got what you've got to do is learn who are the people you can really trust, who are the two or three voices you're going to listen to, and sort through all that. But foolishness is foolishness because it speaks to everything. And we all know someone like this that has an opinion on every single thing, whether they know anything about it or not. And what you do is, at the end of it, you don't know when to listen to them because you don't know when they're talking out their ear and when they're you know, when they really know what they're talking about, and so you just turn it all off. You don't listen to any of it. But with wisdom, and you know people like this, that when they open their mouth, you almost want to, wait a minute, let me get a piece of paper and write this down, because you know that when they go to address something, it's something they've thought about, it's something that they know about, and they just don't open their mouth unless they really know what they're talking about. I think of people that I've had like that in Sunday school classes before where uh, there was a woman in a class a few years ago that if she said something, I can promise you, it was like, remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? Everybody would kind of, and they'd start writing down what she had to say because she never jumped in unless it was something she had really thought about. I'd mention her name, but it'd embarrass her. So wisdom's words are valuable because we know that it's, it's something they've invested in. And in 15 to 20, wisdom is industrious. Again, it's that third law that uh, things are going to tend to disarray when they're left unattended. And, of course, we all know that the thing that you avoid, the thing you don't fix, is just the thing that just gets worse and worse and harder to work on the longer you let it wait. The rafters begin to sag. And this goes back to the idea that I talked about before, of this idea of just the rhythm of work and rest and what we were created to do. And when we get those things out of order, that's what the fool does. The fool wants to go have his party and then wait to the last minute to do the things that have to be done instead of getting them in the right order and doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. 
if there's anything we struggle with now, it's this idea of delayed gratification, of knowing that we've got to work really hard in order to have the time to, to enjoy the fruit of the labor. And everybody's got it backwards now. We all want to do, you know, enjoy the fruit of the labor before we've done the work. And that's the mark of the fool. And as we look at this list of, of these characteristics, all of these require an understanding and an acceptance of how the world is made. And so it goes back to that idea of looking into each situation and we see God in it. And so that as I look at, at um, being calm, I'm able to be calm because I understand that God's ordered things. He's put me in this circumstance and that it's not about how the world responds to it. It's about how I do. I'm able to be humble or the wise man's able to be humble because he looks to God and he says, God's made me who I am and he's given me these strengths and weaknesses and he's strong in my weakness. And so I'm able to accept how he's made me and what he's made me and what he's given me because in the end, I understand it's not about me building my kingdom, it's about me building his. And so as I begin to build his, I know that the result is whatever he's going to make it be. That I'm not responsible for, for building it up, I'm responsible for doing what he's given me to do. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Wisdom's competent because it understands that it doesn't know everything. And when we see that there's a God who's made everything and that I'm willing to accept how he's made it. I'm willing to look at the reality of it. I'm not trying to make something work that doesn't. I'm not trying to force, you know, not only does gravity work, but, there, you know, there's a, within morality, God gave us, uh, the, gave us the, the Bible to teach us he gave us these things because this is how we're made. So when he tells you no sex out of marriage, he's telling you that not because he's trying to give you a loophole, you know, some sort of hurdle to jump just to see if you're capable of it. It's not arbitrary. It's there because he understands how you were made and that you were made for one man, one woman, and that that's the truest, deepest sense of joy. It's your truest understanding of who God is, is when you, when you work your marriage within that boundary. His words are valuable because he understands he doesn't have to know everything. There's not that pressure to solve every problem, to do everything. He's willing to let God be God. And he's industrious because he understands that that's what we were made to do. In the Garden of Eden, they were working. And he understands that that's, you know, we were made for this rhythm of work and rest. So I'll read Ecclesiastes 11 and then the first eight verses of 12. And we'll look at the way of wisdom. What does it look like as we live our lives out with these characteristics? Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes, to eight. For you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If the clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening let, your not, hand, let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or, or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. 
So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up as the sound of, at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, and when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So as we talk about the characteristics of wisdom, I want us to look at the third point, which is the way of wisdom. If we're doing these things, what does our life look like and how do we live it out so that we're able to find the joy that he's talking about here? First, wisdom lives boldly in giving. He talks about casting your bread upon the water and giving your portions to seven, yes to eight. These are euphemisms for being generous. Uh, It's the old uh, adage, you know, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, And what I talked about the last time I was here about the idea of the river and the reservoir, that we approach our resources with the understanding that they're meant to be passed along. He talks about when the cloud's heavy, it rains, and it pours out that on the land, that that's what we're to do, that as we're given these things, that we take what we need and we send the rest on, and that that's, that's what we're encouraged to do here, and we're encouraged to do it even in the times where we can't really see what's coming, because our tendency is going to be to look ahead and try and figure out what's going to happen and what, you know, where are we going to be next year and what's the economy going to do and everything, and yet we're encouraged, even in the face of that, to be bold in our giving that we, we step out in confidence that God's going to provide what we need, that he's going to give us what we, what we really need, and that he's given us what we have already, and that we're going to turn around and use it again because we're here to build his kingdom and not our own. Wisdom lives boldly in working. He talks about whoever watches the wind won't plant and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And I can just tell you that, you know, if you turn, you can, you can look right now and find any opinion you want to find for what's going to happen in the next five years. Yeah, I mean, it, no matter what you want to find, you can find someone that's going to back you up and say, yeah, and they're going to give you a, you know, for me anyway, I, because I, I don't understand it all, you know, it all looks convincing to me. I, I can just get enough information to be dangerous and scared. So um, you could easily just become paralyzed by it all. There's just so much going on that it's hard to know what's the right way to go. And yet what we're told here is, is that we're to figure out the right way and to move ahead. And that we're to go ahead and work. We're to go ahead and give. We're to live boldly because we know that God's going to provide for us. If you think about the parable of the talents, the one, the one servant that was criticized, the one that was, was punished, was the one who came and said, I was afraid. I didn't know what to do with it, and so I buried it. And that's a strong challenge because right now it's so easy to be afraid. And what we've got to do is we've got to figure out 
here's the best I understand what God's called me to do, that we seek him, we look for his guidance, and then we go ahead and we move out and we do what he's put in front of us. Mother Teresa has a great quote, and she said, we're called to be obedient, not successful. And as we think through that idea of of being obedient and not successful, it says um, that we don't know which will succeed. And she said, you know, I didn't start off to start this huge program, you know, this serving the poor. I just saw a man in the street that needed to be picked up. And so I picked him up, and then I picked up the next one, and then all of a sudden we picked up 10,000. And because she was willing to be obedient in that moment, she didn't know what God would do with it. She just knew that she had to love that person in front of her. It was up to him whether he wanted to multiply it, whether he wanted to grow it, what he wanted to do with it. Wisdom lives joyfully. He says that life is sweet and it pleases the eye and he enjoys the sunlight. Life can be enjoyed when we're not holding on too tightly. Here's here's the idea behind this. If you think about how much we go to God with our own agenda and we say, here's what I want to do, and then we ask him to bless it and we start pushing and you know, trying to make these things happen. We all have this idea of what we want our lives to look like, sort of this minimum threshold that we set up for God. All right, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'll do this, and I'll go to church, and I'll tithe, and I'll do all these great things, and I'll serve on this board, and I'll go down and, and work in the soup kitchen, and I'll do whatever. But what I really want you to do is make sure that these things don't happen. You know, if I'm going to do all this, then, I'm, then, then you're going to give me a, a pretty comfortable good life, and, and we'll have a good you know, business arrangement here. And what we're told here is, is that we're to go out and we're to give boldly and we're to live boldly and we don't know where it's, what's going to happen or how it'll go. And uh, the example I use with my kids is I don't really know what God has in t- intended for my kids, but if I tell my kids, you've got to be a doctor, you've got to be whatever, and I pound that in their head and God has made them for something completely different, then all I'm doing is frustrating them. And so I tell them it's kind of like a tree. Let's say I, I'm giving some seeds to plant and I put them in the ground, but I don't know what they're going to be. And so I... I have two choices. I can, I can water them and do whatever, and I can yell at that seed to be an oak tree and, and you know, be tall and, and you know, give me shade. But what if it's a rose bush? And so what I'm really called to do is to nurture it, to do everything I know, to get, you know, give it sunlight, feed it, fertilize it, do whatever, and let it become the tree that God intended it to be. And that's what we do with our lives. We go to him and we, all, we, say, you know, we go to him and we say, I don't know what you've got planned for me, but I'm going to be obedient to whatever you've called me to and I have no control over where you're going to take it. I'm going to do the very, very best I can with it and then I'm going to accept whatever it is that you give me because I'm not here to build my kingdom, I'm here to build yours. That's the source of wisdom. Because if you look at chapter 12, in this last point, he talks about he takes us through this really frightening list. <laughs> Frankly, at 41, this is really frightening. This frightening list of things that are about to happen and that we're, where we're all headed inevitably. He talks about the grinders ceasing because they're few. You know, your teeth begin to fall out. and uh, the, looking, the windows grow dim, so you, you know, your eyesight begins to fail. I, I am kind of getting to that point where I'm you know, moving the paper back and forth. And... Um, and I used to have complete and total recall, and I promise you, don't ask me what actor's in some movie because I won't be able to think of their name. Um, 
He talks about you know, the sound of the birds growing faint as your hearing begins to fail. The almond tree blossoms. When almond tree blossoms, it turns white. So you know, as your hair begins to turn white. Uh, he talks about desire no longer being stirred. And I frankly am not talking about that. Um, we're just not going there. So he talks about the inevitability of just how our bodies are going to fail and to not put our hope in the youth and, and vigor and that just to know that this is what is coming. And, that, and then he says, knowing this is coming, remember your creator. This is the foundation of wisdom is to remember. Um, our choices are like water. You know, as water rolls over land, it begins to cut a trough and it begins to erode. And our choices begin to erode uh, how we're put together. And so they create channels and then they create rivers and they create canyons. And so these, these choices that we make become habits and patterns. And they become so ingrained in us that you know how hard it is. It may not be too hard to divert, uh, you know, a little rut in the, in the ground, but, you know, divert the Mississippi River. And this is what our choices are like. And he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth begin to establish that now begin to look to him now before everything else begins to fail and before you begin to fall apart even then even when you're feeling strong and like you know nothing can happen to you and you know you remember that feeling that you just no way that that you know you're indestructible and um and yet he says even then remember him establish those patterns c.s lewis in the great divorce talks about uh one of the characters in the book is Uh, a lady who grumbles and he talks about her and he says you know she grumbled and she grumbled and she got into this habit of just never happy about anything always complaining until in the end she just become a grumble that there was nothing left of her but this grumbling machine going on for eternity that's what happens to us these these patterns that we get in and these choices that we make they build on each other and they build on each other and we're called what he's telling us is just right now Look to God in everything. Learn to see him in everything. Establish that pattern now so that as you grow older, that it's there and that you see him in everything. That that's the foundation of wisdom. And this word remember is not just recall. Walt Kaiser says that remember means much more than simple recall. Besides reflecting on and pondering the work of God and creating each individual in his world, there is a strong implication of action. This idea of remembering, you see it all through the Bible. God talks about remembering us. He tells us to remember the Sabbath day, not just that we go, hey, today's Sunday, it's a day off, great, we're going to church. He says remember it by keeping it holy. There's an action implied there that you're remembering is tied to how, what you do that day. That as you remember it, it changes who you are and how you respond to what day it is. He tells us when he, when he uh, gave the first communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And again, it wasn't just to have sort of this intellectual assent that, hey, God, you know, Jesus died for me. It was more than that. He said, do it in remembrance. Do it so that you remember what it is that I've done for you and what I've done for you, the sacrifice that my death, my laying down my body is going to change who you are. It's going to affect everything that you do. Everything that you do in your life, every decision you make is going to be reflecting on the, the gift that I've given you, the sacrifice I've made for you. On the cross, you remember the, the man dying on the cross next to Jesus says, Jesus, remember me this day when you go to paradise. And he wasn't saying, hey, send me a postcard, remember me. He was saying, when you go there, think of who I am and bring me with you. The 
Wisdom begins in remembering so that we look to our creator and we say, he's made things a certain way. It's not up for me to decide what's right and wrong. I'm going to look to him. I'm going to see what he says is right or wrong. And then I'm going to shape my actions to that reality. That's the root of all wisdom. It's all through here. So that even as my body begins to fail, I'm hanging on to the one thing that I know will last. And I want to close this with a a story from a book that I just read. And uh, it's a book called Three Cups of Tea. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a guy named Greg Mortensen. He was a rock climber. He was a mountain climber. And so he goes to the Himalayas, and he's going to climb K2. And the part of the climb fails, and he has to come back down with one of the men who's injured. And so as they're coming back down, he gets lost. And, you know, if you get lost up there, you die. So he, he gets lost. He stumbles into a village. He doesn't know anyone there. And uh, the village sort of takes him in, and they nurse him, and he gets to know everyone in the village. And as he's getting to know them, and as he's been there a few weeks, and he's recovering his health, he asks them, you know, where is the school for the children? And they take him over to like a flat place on the side of the mountain, and there's uh, an area where all the kids are sitting, and they're scratching out their lessons in the dirt. And he said, this is, this is the school, and since the teacher costs a dollar a day, we can only afford her for three days a week. So we split her with another village and said, this is what we do. And he said, this is crazy, and because of what you've done for me, I want to come back, and I, wanna, I promise you I'm going to build these children a school. And we're, you know, I want to do something for you because of what you've done for me. So he begins to, the, you know, the book tells about how he raises the money, and they go back, and they're building the school, and everyone's excited, and they're going to, in the process, you know, the village chief is on board. He wants to build the school. And in particular, what he's doing, he's building the school for girls because when men get the education, they move away and they, they, they go somewhere else. But women, when they get the education, stay there and they teach everyone else in the village. So he said it's really important if we want to have a lasting impact that we want to go in and we want to train the girls. And so he's building this school. And the uh, sort of the area religious leader, because this is a Muslim area, uh, the area religious leader shows up one day when they're getting ready to open the school, and he says, you're not going to do this, one, because it's an infidel that's leading the, you know, leading the building of the school, and we're not going to have him come in and influence our children. And uh, two, it's because it's for girls, and girls don't need to be educated, and I'm not going to allow this. Well, the village chief understands and knows this guy, and what he knows is, is the guy is sort of the godfather of the area, and nothing happens without his approval. And he understands that what the guy's really looking for is probably some kind of payoff. And so he says, well, tell me, what is it going to cost me to open this school? And the guy says, well, I don't want you to do it, but if you're going to open it, it's going to cost you 12 rams. And the, the author explains that a ram there is really the wealth of the village. And so what he's asking for is he's asking for this tremendous price. And the village chief turns around and he says, great, go get the rams. And so, of course, the American guy is just furious, you know, and how can you let him do this? This is so wrong, and what are you doing? And, uh, you know, the, so the kids show up, and they're dragging the, go- the, the rams along, and they're crying. And, and what, you know, the boys have nursed these rams up since they were little, and, you know, this is it's this huge sacrifice. And let me read you what he says. So the village chief tells, tells the American, he says, no, look, it's, it's okay, really. He says, long after these rams are dead and eaten, this school will still stand. Uh, the religious leader's name is Mady, and he says, Mady has food today, but now our children have education forever.
And so he's, you know, he's taken aback. He says, wow, you know, this guy, this guy's really made a great decision. He's right. I mean, he's given up something right now, but, but look what he's bought for his children. And so later that night, he's sitting with the guy in his house, and the guy picks up a book, and he hands it to him, and he says, do you see how beautiful this Quran is? And uh, the author says, yeah, and he says, the guy, the village chief says, you know, I can't read it. I can't read anything, and it's the greatest sadness in my life. I'll do anything so the children of my village never have to know this feeling. I'll pay any price so that they have the education they deserve. That Mortensen's response was, here was this illiterate man who'd hardly ever left his little village, and yet he was the wisest man I've ever met. Now, I know it's a little unsettling because that story's about the Quran, but what I want to tell you is, is that underneath it all is this wisdom, that what this guy understood was is that what he believes to be the word of God is the one thing he couldn't read for himself, and that he was willing to give up whatever it took so that his children would be able to read what he believed the word of God to be. That whatever sacrifice it required of him, that he would do that in order... Uh, the, the 12 rams is like half the wealth of the village. And he gladly gave it up so that one day his children and the children of that village would be able to read what he believes to be the word of God for themselves. That's wisdom. And there's a challenge in there for us. Do we feel, you know, this is totally free and it is wisdom. Do we feel that strongly about what we believe to be the Word of God that we've so invested ourselves in it that we would give up anything to make sure that it's the one thing our children are hanging on to, that it's the one thing we're hanging on to, and it's the one thing that we find most beautiful? This is the one thing this guy treasured about everything else is he said, look at this, isn't it beautiful? Do we hold it up and say, isn't this beautiful? It's the Word of God because what it is is it's the reality that we look to, that in every situation we bring the... the what God has revealed to us to bear to every situation. And isn't this in the end what Jim Elliot said, that he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which, that which he cannot lose. And so what the, what the teacher has done in Ecclesiastes is he's given us this laundry list of things that we try to hang on to, that we try to keep, and yet we can't. No, no matter what power, no matter what wealth, no matter what sexual enjoyment, no matter what you know, anything else you enjoy, no matter what it is, no matter what it is you're trying to hold on to, it can be good things, your involvement at the church, your family, your marriage. There's none of this that you can hold on to forever. And yet, the one thing that you can hold on to forever is the one thing he's telling you, remember your creator. That whatever you invest in that relationship, whatever you give to God, is going to be returned back to you, that one day it'll be all made complete, that is when you're seeking him, then you're able to find enjoyment in everything else because it, then it takes the place that it should take. And so this, in the end, is what wisdom is. It's the thing that gives us meaning because what we were meant for, and you know, it's one of, what is it, the first thing in our catechism, that uh, to, enjoy, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's what we were created for. And so in that, when we remember him and when we seek him that way, when he becomes our audience, that everything that we do when we remember him is shaped, that all of our actions, all of our lives are shaped by that, that's the way that wisdom gives us, gives us meaning in our lives. And so I would ask you again, is that what you're holding on to? Like this man, like the chief in the village, are you willing to give up everything to know him that way? And I'll close this with prayer. Lord, we're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've given us your word, that we can know uh, who you are, uh, that we can seek you in it, and that you'll be revealed, and that 
um, all of life will be shown to us that we'll know um, who you are. We'll know the love that you have for us. We'll know the sacrifice that you've made for us. And we pray uh, that as we know it, that it will change us, that it will shape us, that it will make us into wise people who look to you in every situation. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.